0: Good morning everyone. Welcome to church. Two things before we get into the sermon. One is my my favorite Alpha story. So 20 years ago I lived in England. Uh, my wife and I did. We had our first child over there. She actually lives in London now. And we were leading, I was leading Alpha in a prison and we were in this uh, group circle where we were talking about the basics of the faith. Like so on the 8th of February, I'll be teaching on, like, is there more to meaning, uh, more to life than this? It's just basically a one-night, come, bring a friend. If you're dealing with doubt, come. There's no obligation. Uh, I love Alpha. It's awesome uh, because you just rarely have an opportunity to be as honest and raw about what Christianity is and then people not to feel manipulated into an outcome. Well, we were in this prison... And at some point during the conversation, this guy in the circle who was a hardened criminal, I mean, he uh, was from the Scottish Highlands, um, began to pour his heart out to me in our group discussion. I mean, he's crying. He is just, I mean, i it was real. It was powerful. I also had no idea what he was saying. I asked... If you've never met someone from the Scottish islands, you don't know what I'm talking about because the Scottish people on television, that's not the way it really works. I I asked him to repeat himself like 10 times. And then finally, I was like, God, you know what he's saying. And I think he became a Christian. I'm not 100% sure, Uh, but something big time was happening. And it was my... like the most foundational alpha moment that I've ever had because it reinforced the reality that God works and we rarely really know what's going on. I mean, if you're talking to somebody that you, you understand their language and their accent, you think you know what's going on, but we rarely can plumb the depths of what's going on inside someone's soul. And this was one of those moments for me where I was like, I think this is sort of true in every conversation I've ever had, but I just know it's true now. I have no idea. And yet God was like reaching out to this guy in a way that quite literally had nothing to do with any of us. Because we didn't know what he was talking about. But God knew. So I just want to say, if you are in a place of wrestling, in a place of doubt, if you have friends, this is an opportunity to come and just... Be in a winsome environment to talk about Jesus. The second thing I have to say is about that really weird text that we just read about meat. Because I know some of you are thinking, what in the world? This is why I don't read the Bible. This is so weird. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of a like Corinth history lesson for two seconds before I get into the sermon. The Corinthian moment was the first moment where multi-ethnicity was happening in the early church. You had Jews and Gentiles trying to figure out how to be in the church together, primarily before the catalytic moments of Acts, Christianity was almost exclusively Jewish. So what was happening in Corinth is that you would have these pagan temples and attached to the temple, there'd be a butcher shop and that's where people bought their meat. And so the Jews were able to go and be like, We know that there's no such thing as an idol there, so we can get our meat from that that butcher shop and like chow down, have a steak. But the Gentiles who are recently becoming Christians who used to go into those temples and engage in acts of idolatry were saying, I can't have my meat from that place because I used to go there and do all kinds of things that now I know in my heart I'm not supposed to do. So what Paul is saying in this moment is to a Jew, do not use your liberty if it's going to be damaging to a brother or a sister in the Lord for whom this is deeply distressing. I think there are actually some modern analogies. Uh, Like for instance, if you have a friend or a family member who struggles deeply with alcohol addiction. To just pop open a beer in front of that person while you have the freedom to do that could actually become a stumbling block because it's deeply, viscerally distressing for them. What Paul is trying to say there is be aware that we're in an ecosystem that is broad and people are coming from somewhere and never use your freedom as a license to cause someone else to fall. Like that's just a really good piece of advice. But if you didn't know some of that, you'd just think like, what the world? Paul is talking, we should all be vegetarians. I just want to say, I don't think we are. We're going to eat meat in heaven. Sorry, vegetarians. Uh, And I don't really understand all the economy and the, I don't understand all how that's going to happen, but I think we are. Um, But, but, but now this is a moment, I think, for us to learn how to bear with one another and to be aware of what's going on. People are always bringing something to your interaction with them. And as much as you can to be aware, that's how we bear with one another in the body of Christ. So that's really what that text is about. That was for free. This one's also for free. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 1. We're going to read. And I'm just going to tell you today, this is going to be a doozy. Um, I have two purposes today in the sermon. One is to convince you of the devil and the reality of the devil. And I recognize like some of you may leave the church after this because you're going to think I've gone crazy. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try, try to get you to believe in the devil. And number two, I'm going to try to convince you of the power of Jesus so that we would learn to live our lives believing in the devil uh, in the right way. So that's my purpose. Buckle up. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear Jesus today. I pray that you would help us to re-engage line of thinking maybe that many of us have not thought deeply about or we've just discounted or we've just avoided entirely. God, I pray that we would let Jesus have a hearing today in our midst. I pray that we would recognize that Jesus believed in the devil and so we all ought to also believe in the devil. I pray that you would help us, God. Help us help us modern Western educated elites Help us come to you and submit to you and receive from you. In Jesus' name, and help us to understand our own world in light of the truth that we are spiritual beings in a spiritual world. In Jesus' name, amen. I was a senior in high school in 1994, and I remember watching the Rwandan genocide over cereal before I went to school every morning. On one level, I knew that it was happening. A million people murdered within 90 days, not through weapons of mass destruction, but by machete and hatchet, stories of even an Anglican priest who reportedly invited people into his church, locked the door, set the church on fire, killed killed them all. A million people in 90 days. I just want you to think about that, the scale of that. The Rwandan genocide, which I was having breakfast as I was engaging, killed people at a clip faster than the highest peak of the extermination of Jews at Dachau and Auschwitz. It was an astounding summer. And I knew that it was real. But I was so far away from it that I didn't necessarily feel the reality of it. And for many of us, as we think about the conflict in the Ukraine and Russia or in the Gaza Strip, it's like we know that it's happening, but we don't know that it's happening. I remember reading about people who lived in Atlanta during the um, Civil War during the the buildup and then the implementation of the burning of Atlanta. And there were stories of people around Kennesaw who would get dressed up in their Sunday best and pack picnics and go up onto hillsides and watch the battles happening down in the valley. It was like sort of a spectator sport. It was like, let's go see what that's about. And you were able to watch it from a kind of a clinical or a safe distance, what was happening down in the valley. You and me, we have an adversary. And like I said, my purpose today is, if nothing else, to convince you of that reality or at least make you appropriately skeptical of what you currently believe. The most esteemed person to ever stand in this pulpit was Archbishop Emmanuel Collini, who was the Archbishop of Rwanda in the immediate aftermath of the genocide. It's one of the gifts of being an Anglican. Um, there are 90 million of us to choose from, and occasionally you have a hero like Collini. Collini was Ugandan-born, had lived in Rwanda, and um, was told that he was of Tutsi origin. And if you've done a lot of reading um, about the genocide, I I would encourage you to do so. Stephen Kinzer's book, Land of a Thousand Hills, is just an unbelievably powerful telling of the Rwandan story, the genocide, and the aftermath. Well, Kalini said that everyone wanted to explain the genocide in terms of politics or racial strife or how politics fabricated racial strife. Uh, in the sense of essentially inventing distinctions that then caused people who had lived next door to one another and their families and their families' families, I mean, to turn on one another in the ways that they did. And Colini said, all the explanations fell short. He's like, I don't believe politics could cause a million people to be exterminated over the course of three months. He said... It was as if the devil of hell were walking the streets of Kigali. And I remember hearing him say that and thinking, "I was just eating cereal, trying to like be aware when this was happening. I was so far away from it. I want you to expand your worldview, your theological worldview. And one of the challenges we have is that we're educated and we're sophisticated and we're elites. You may not think of yourself as an elite. You are just simply based on the fact that you were born where you were born and you have the opportunities that you have. And so what happens is we step so far back that we live as if real things are not real. And I hope we'll listen to Jesus today. I believe that there are two kinds of prejudice. One is what we call chronological bias, which is simply us saying ancient people don't know what we know, so they believe things that we can't believe. It's, it's like one of the most socially acceptable forms of prejudice because we just look back at people like Paul and Jesus and we say, well, they just didn't know what we know. And there's truth. That there's some true things that they didn't know that we know. And yet to discount the wisdom of the church or of history because we think we somehow know better is a, is a folly. It's a, it's a risky thing. Now, there's another kind of prejudice that I think we run into, which is to say our friends in Africa or in the Dominican Republic are just not as sophisticated as we are. So they believe things that we just can't believe. Most of the world today understand that we live as spiritual beings in a spiritual world. Most of the world believes this, not because they're stupid or because they are poor or because they are not American. They do so because they experience the world as people have always experienced the world. And in some regards, they take Jesus more seriously than we do. My hope is that you will be willing to suspend your doubt or maybe to suspend your conviction that you somehow know better than the rest of the world or the rest of human history and that you would begin to make room for the fact that it might be possible that you are currently being plundered by the devil of hell, that you have an adversary. Now, we're not meant to become then obsessed with that adversary, you know, like, if you're over 45, the church lady on the old Saturday Night Live skits. <laughs> she blamed everything on the devil. I just want to suggest that we're a long way from that. We're a long way from that. So let's, let's look at the text. Number one, Jesus teaches with authority. Uh, he enters into Jewish spaces. He is teaching. We don't know actually at this point in Mark's gospel, what Jesus was saying, but we are told that his teaching, his words carried with it a sense of power, a sense of authority. It was kind of like landing on people and in people in a way that was more than just like the last person that taught. There's something weighty about Jesus's words. And I would submit to you that Jesus today has something to say about our lived experience. That Jesus actually wants his words to form us and shape us and move us so that we would learn something that our world is increasingly afraid of doing, which is submission. To submit means to come under. It doesn't mean you check your brain at the door. It means that you yield to the will or the power of another. In this case, Jesus wants us to learn submission. So I would suggest to you that Jesus has something to say about our life, about our lived experience. He has something to say about the way we think, about the way we relate, about the way we order our lives, the way we see power, the way we see success, about our appetites, about our hurts. Jesus wants you to recognize that his desire is to shape and form you. In the same way that if a rock is thrown in a river and it stays there long enough, the edges of that rock are smoothed off, that's what God wants to do as we learn to submit to Him. And yet, many of us, if we're honest, we don't take Jesus as seriously as we should. A few years ago, I decided to do what my grandmother apparently instinctively knew how to do, which is to buy a red letter Bible. Um, the, the letters in my Bible historically have always been black. Um, just, you know, simpler that way, I guess. And my grandmother was like a real believer in the red letter Bible. She wanted to like have Jesus's words kind of jump out at her. And I remember sitting in a spiritual direction Space when I was going through that season of burnout <clears throat> and the spiritual director that I was sitting with said, you need to buy a red letter Bible and like let Jesus just say some things to you again. So I did. And I love it. Um, apparently, it used to be that only King James Version Bibles were red letter. That was my grandmother's preferred choice. She felt like that was the only way to go. But you can buy all kinds of translations of the Bible with red letters. And if you're old, you can buy big print red letter bibles if you choose to do so that is certainly the route that I seem to be going these days well Jesus wants to say some things to you if you've been away from your bible for a while I would encourage you to go read and just read it and let Jesus say things Jesus has stuff to say Jesus has authority He has power and he asks us to submit. Every day when I read my Bible and I get into those words of Jesus, I make a conscious choice to to yield to Jesus. He wins every arm wrestling match that we have. And I arm wrestle with him all the time. I'm like, I don't like that. I don't like the way my life is going in this area. I don't like what you're saying here. I show up. I put my arm on the table and and he beats me every time. And I'm so thankful because he has authority. I would just ask you to be open to the fact that Jesus wants you to surrender to him and submit to him and let him shape you. Let him form you in the same way that when a rock is thrown in that river, it is shaped and formed over a very long period of time. It's time for some of us to get our Bibles out. It's time for some of us to let Jesus begin to win in your life. He has something to say. And following him has a lot to do with continuing to assess how far we're going to let him take us. (laughs) And I just want you to open up to the authority of Jesus. Number two, Jesus has an enemy, and so do we. I would encourage you to beware of a cartoonish image of demons and the devil. We tend to think of little red creatures with horns and pitchforks, and we think, I can't believe in that, so I can't believe in this. I would challenge you to think with me for a moment about the devil. I tried to open it up by saying there are some things that happen, not just in the macro, not just like the Rwandan genocide, but there are things that happen around us and to us and in us. There are systemic issues for which I believe the best example or explanation would be personified evil. And I think we need to stop and sit and think about the fact that Jesus seemed to clearly believe in the devil. And so should we. Because this is uh, touchy and I think controversial and difficult for us to hold our hearts and our heads around, um, we're going to invite a thinker, a dead thinker into the pulpit right now. Whenever I feel like I'm over my head, um, I usually find a dead person and say, what do you have to say to us here? Alexander Schmimann, who was an Orthodox scholar and theologian, um, Alexander Schmiemann is going to teach us in, in the next few moments and for the next few moments. I don't normally put quotes up. I'm going to put four quotes up because I really want Schmimann to tell you something about the devil. Uh, His writing and thinking on this issue has shaped and informed and helped me. I think he's one of the great minds theologically of the 20th century church. He said, the church has always had the experience of the demonic, has always in plain words known the devil. If this direct knowledge has not resulted in a neat and orderly doctrine, it is because of the difficulty, if not the impossibility, rationally, to define the irrational and the demonic and more generally evil are precisely the reality of the irrational. Many theologians have attempted to explain evil like the Rwandan genocide, like the... uh, the the abuse of children, the systematic violence that occasionally happens against the powerless and the oppressed as um, in a rational way by saying, oh, this was just political issues. This was just good intentions gone wrong or the absence of good. They compare evil, many people, even well-intentioned Christians to darkness. It's just the absence of light. That's not what the church has always believed. Let's look at the next quote. Shmiman says, It is precisely a presence, a presence of something dark, irrational, and very real, although the origin of that presence may not be clear and immediately understandable. Thus, hatred is not a simple absence of love. It is the presence of a dark power, which can indeed be extremely active, clever, and even creative. And it is certainly not the result of ignorance. We may know And hate. And if you've ever experienced hate, you know that that's true somewhere in your bones. If all hatred was just ignorance, it lets systems, it lets the enemy, it lets us off the hook. The scriptures teach us that the devil, the Satan, came from a rebellion. A creature of God, beautiful, that rose up against in rebellion. So Shmiman says, whoever he is, the devil is among the very first and the best creatures of God. He is, so to speak, perfect enough, wise enough, powerful enough. One can almost say divine enough to know God and not surrender to him. To know him and yet to opt against him, to desire freedom from him. But since this freedom is impossible in the love and light, which always lead to God and to a free surrender of him, it must of necessity be fulfilled in negation, hatred, and rebellion. I think those three ideas, negation, hatred, and rebellion, are really important when we think about the strategies and the tactics of the devil. So what do we do? I think this is the best way to understand the Rwandan genocide. I think Archbishop Colini was right when he said it was as if the devil of hell were walking the streets of Kigali. I also think it's the best way to understand violent sexual abuse of children or adults. And we're going to talk about how the devil and the person are not identical. Jesus saw them as separate. He saw through the enemy's oppression and saw children of God, image bearers. But what we must recognize, I believe, is that I think, and the church thinks, and Jesus thinks, that the most logical way to understand the irrational is through an understanding of the fact that we have an adversary. We have a demon, a devil, an opponent. So what do we do? Shmiman will let him tell us. If there is one thing we learn From spiritual experience, it is that evil is not to be explained, but faced and fought. This is the way God dealt with evil. He did not explain it. He sent his only begotten son to be crucified by all the powers of evil, so as to destroy them by his love, faith, and obedience. Shmiman said that in 1974. Here's why I've engaged this idea with so much intention. If we have an adversary, we should be wise to that fact. Jesus understood this. He knew there was a struggle. Now, there is a way to miss the mark in the other direction, to become fixated or obsessed with the devil, to, as some would suggest, look for demons under lampshades. Blame everything on the devil. We're so far from that that I think we need to maybe potentially make some room to suspend our elitist, modernist convictions that we know. Maybe we don't know. Maybe we're being plundered. Maybe we have an adversary. Maybe we are not primarily thinking things. And if you attend this church, I hope you know that we care about thinking. We um, try to rigorously think. We, We believe in not checking our brains at the door. And yet we also recognize that we are spiritual beings We live in a spiritual world, and a lot of our friends around the world, and certainly throughout the ages, have been acutely aware that we are spiritual beings. I believe that one of the greatest strategies of the devil of hell is to convince you that he's not real. C.S. Lewis explored this idea in the Screwtape Letters. He, I think, imaginatively and brilliantly tells a story about demons and their engagement with people. It's funny. It's interesting, and I think lots of it is true. Jesus had an enemy. Some of us are being plundered. I ask for protection almost every single day, especially when I sense that there is a struggle afoot. I ask God to protect me. I ask Jesus to protect me. And the reason for that is the third movement in the text, which is that the enemy is threatened by Jesus' authority. You, if you align with Jesus, are on the winning side. As Jesus is teaching in this text, a man with an unclean spirit cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the devil says, the demon says, the Holy One of God. The enemy knew something about Jesus that people in the room listening to Jesus maybe didn't know. Was more dialed in, more aware of some of the realities. And there are a couple of things for us to note here. Number one, the issue is with the evil, not the person who is crying out. The person crying out is oppressed. And I think there are like, there's a gradient or a spectrum of oppression. We, we sometimes think of like, you know, like Dawn of the Dead, um, or if you're under 35, Sean of the Dead. And we think that's what the devil does, right? If you're not like walking around like a zombie, then you're, you know, you're good. I think that there are, um, there are people, and I, I would suggest and at this point, I like, I know some of you are like, this guy's This guy, what? Well, I'm just going to go for it, you know? Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram with a really strong eight wing, so strong that I get confused sometimes as to whether I'm an eight with a seven, so I'm just going to go for it. I've prayed in um, spiritual spaces around exorcisms so many times. Marty and I have had a lot of experience praying for and engaging in the supernatural, and I've seen God set people free in ways that are powerful and distressing in the moment. Jesus has authority. We as children of God um, have one who is powerful. Jesus looks at the person who is oppressed and he doesn't rebuke the person. He tells the enemy to be silent and to come out so that this image bearing child of God can get his life back. Why would Jesus tell the enemy to be silent? Because the enemy is a liar the enemy is an author of confusion. And one of the ways that we know that we're being oppressed, and I'm not, again, you're not probably, I don't see any Sean of the Deads out here, right? None of you are like frothing at the mouth and you're, you're, you've lost the whole plot and you've lost your dignity. I think that can happen, but it doesn't have to happen in order to be oppressed. One of the ways that we know we're being oppressed is when we begin to believe lies. When we begin to believe in the confusing stories that spiral us down into dark places, things that are fundamentally not true about us as children of God, that's the work of the enemy. And some of us have grown so accustomed to hearing some of those internal messages that we just think it's who we are, and we, worse, can sometimes believe that it's true. Or even worse, that God is saying those things. That God is saying it's too late for you. That God is saying, you're too far gone. That God is saying, this is too messed up. That God is saying, there's no hope for you. That is not the voice of our Father. That is not the voice of our Father. That's the voice of the Father of lies. And it's time for us to recognize that we are in a struggle. And that sometimes lies and confusion aren't just coming from sad places in you, but coming from spiritual spaces to keep us off balance and lacking the confidence that we're meant to have as children of God. The enemy is threatened by Jesus's authority. If you belong to Jesus, his power and his life are available to us. I think we miss this too much of the time. My prayer is that your eyes would be open. I would go so far as to say that if we believed what the man with the unclean spirit believed, which is you're, the, you're powerful, if we actually believed what that enemy was saying out loud, we would live our lives with a whole lot less fear, with a whole lot more hope for redemptive art, For the work of God to be manifest in us. I believe the Lord wants to open our eyes. And I know this is controversial. I don't think it should be, but I know it is. I know that this can feel hard, but I just want to lean in and say, let's listen to Jesus. So then what does Jesus do? The final movement is he acts with authority. He doesn't just say authoritative things. He acts with authority. The image of the enemy being afraid because Jesus is going to act is a really important one. And I just want to say to you that Jesus wants to act. He wants to move in your life. He wants to set you free. A lot of us struggle with oppression, not possession, but oppression. But we feel the weight of lies and addiction and bondage and things that are, I think, best explained by the reality of personified evil. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we experience is that. There's such a thing as pain and trauma and chemical imbalances, mental health issues are real. They're real. And so we don't want to become like, superstitious and paranoid, I would say that as you pursue wholeness and healing and see that there are things we can do both therapeutically and medically to receive healing, also I think we should make room for the fact that we have an enemy and an adversary. I think the task of grown-up people living in a complex world is to hold some of that tension together. And it's not easy, but Jesus has something to say. So when he speaks to the demon, he silences the liar and the accuser and the confusion inducer. And that is so important. The Lord wants to silence the voice of confusion and deception and lies for all of us. That's his desire. That's one of the desires of Jesus for us. And then he exercises the demon. He says, get out. You have no place here. And what happens to the guy? We're not told explicitly exactly what happens here, but we are elsewhere in the New Testament. Think of Legion, the guy that was running around like naked with chains hanging off of him and scaring people to death, you know. The Jews had put Legion out because they needed to be clean and safe, and he was not either of those. So what? Legion had lost everything. I think this guy had lost everything, family. Vocation, the ability to go to synagogue, his whole life had been taken away from him. And so when Jesus speaks freedom, he doesn't just speak freedom to therapeutically take away hurts. He does do that. He wants to give us our lives back. He wants you to have your life back. What has the enemy taken from you? What has addiction taken from you? What is bondage to pornography taken from you? What is believing the lies of an accuser, a confusion inducer? What has it done? How have you been plundered? Jesus wants to set us free. He came for freedom. He came for wholeness. He came to give us our lives back. This guy this guy got his life back. This guy got to go back to church. He got to go back to a small group. (laughs) He got to re-engage. He got to explore what redemption looked like. And I believe that the same redemption arc is available to us as the people of God. And I love the way the text ends. People still don't know what to do with Jesus. So here's the question I want us to hold at the end. Where do you sense darkness, evil at play? And again, there's a continuum here. I'm not naive to the fact that some of us walking in this room, you're dealing with really, really debilitatingly dark things that maybe you haven't known what to do with. It'd be good for you to name that quietly before God. But also, if you feel just that confusion, the thing that feels like you could just cover it over, where is there some darkness or evil at play in your life and what does Jesus and what do you want or long for Jesus to do for you? I want us to hold that question this week in our journals. I want us to hold it now for a few moments. I also want you to be courageous enough that if you feel some of this at play, To reach out to one of our pastors and we'll sit with you and pray with you. Or to come forward and say, I just feel some heaviness that I'm thinking now might be me needing to be protected and prayed for for protection. We will do that at the front at the end of this service. You are a spiritual being in a spiritual world. So let's be still for a few moments as we hold that question. These questions and then we will come to the communion table and allow God to feed us.